Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. All right, welcome everybody. How are we this morning? Good. So some news. Today's kind of a a family business Sunday. And the first one is big thanks to Paul for filling in this morning. Andy Zapata was supposed to start his paternity leave next Sunday. He said, Charlie, I'm going to take two weeks. I said, why are you not doing any of the work? We got into it. He won. (laughs) No, we believe in paternity leave at CBC. And I got a text this morning that Jamie's water broke at 4 a.m., right? And I said, that's right. I'm your best friend and boss. You know who to text first, all right? Run a tight ship here at CBC, everybody. Uh, and supposedly at 9.30, they were going to get the kid via C-section. So hopefully, little Milo's a pod is about 50 minutes old, everybody. So that's good. Four people are excited. Pray for Andy and Jamie. I know they're very, very excited. And just, man, I remember years ago, I was leading our young families group here as a guy that wasn't married with no kids. And... <laughs> true story. And so we are talking through this group, all these parents are talking through, somebody asked the question is, is it more difficult going from zero kids to one kid or one kid to two kids? And people are going back and forth and they said zero to one is really difficult because it, it is a life altering shift. And some were saying that one to two is really difficult. And one person said, God's going to give you what you need to get through. Now that's a really good Christian answer. I have two kids now. It's way harder to go from one to two. Okay. Way hard. There's no downtime or off switch. Pray for Andy. All right, everybody? Uh, beyond that, today is, is really exciting because it's a little bit of an offshoot. Next week, we're going to start our fall, our fall series in Titus. But today, we get to talk about something that as an elder board, we've been talking about at CBC for 10 years. We get the opportunity to discuss an issue that we feel like we need to have clarity in, and it's women in the leadership at CBC. And all of you said, oh, my, can I leave? No. You cannot. It's a good day, man. For 10 years, we've talked about it. I love that Steve's here today. He was a part of these conversations. And this is a good day because we get to celebrate what God has been doing and is going to do through CDC. This is a good day because at Crossroads, what we want to do is equip people to live out the gospels, the influence of Jesus in their world. That's it. That's what we want to do. Whether it's on Sunday morning or Monday morning or Thursday night or Friday night or whatever that might be, we want to equip people to live out the influence of Jesus so that people see the beauty of God. And I've been here for 13 years, and 13 years in November. Um, let me tell you that, that I think that this is one of the issues that we've talked about for a long time, and, and I think now we're finally realizing that it's time to, to talk about it in a more public space. I think it's something we're going to celebrate together. I think that when we talk about kind of the woman's role in leadership at CBC, there hasn't been a ton of clarity around this issue. I don't know if you guys have recognized it, but sometimes we call like Delenn and Kara pastor or Chantel before pastor or director. It's kind of been confusing. And I thoroughly believe that clarity is grace. And so we just want to have clarity around it. And so today we're going to take some time and we're just going to talk about it. We're talk about what we think the Bible says. We're going to talk through kind of why we're doing this now. We're going to talk through our fourfold affirmations that we believe that's going to guide this conversation for us. We're going to talk through what some of the scripture says, and we're going to talk through what it might actually change. So we'll get done sometime tomorrow morning. It's going to be super exciting, right? But before we do that, let's do what we do every Sunday, and let's pray. Because this morning, we know that God brought us here. This morning, we know God will speak to us. This morning, we know that God is present in our lives and in this place. We know the Spirit will speak through his word to his people to form us into the ways of Jesus. And we have to divorce kind of our cultural baggage for what we do in this space, in this room, wherever we're at, where God doesn't say, you know, hey, try to poke holes in, but instead contribute to the conversation of faith. We don't come here to start fights. We come here to say, where is God moving? Let's join that. And so we're just going to pray for our hearts. that He might give us a heart of encouragement and contribution into what he's speaking this morning. So I'm going to pray. I'll ask you to pray a little bit, and I'll ask you to pray for me, but let's go. God, I'm thankful that we can be here this morning. I'm thankful for new growth. I'm thankful for the blessing of kids. I'm thankful uh, just for how we see your church move and love on people well and grow, whether new people or kids. Today, as we, as we talk a little organizational management at CBC, guide our discussion. I pray that the scriptures are clear. 
God, we pray for grace in how we speak this and how we hear this, that we might understand that at the end of the day, the church glorifies the name and work of Jesus, and that is what's ultimate. So may we hear everything today in light of what's ultimate. I'd ask if you're comfortable, just take a couple seconds and say a prayer to yourself and ask that the Spirit might guide you today and give us grace today and give us wisdom today as we talk about his church. I see, pray for me, that I can speak clearly on a topic we're passionate about, that I can speak clearly on a topic that's important, um, and that we speak with grace in, in this conversation. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said... Amen. If you got a Bible, we're going to bounce around a bit at the beginning, and towards the end, we're going to go to 1 Timothy 2, so you can kind of mark that if you want to when we get there. And I haven't planned for 20 minutes, so let's just compromise and say 40. Um, at CBC, let's talk a little bit about why we're having this conversation today, how we got here. So, so literally, this conversation started on the elder board over 10 years ago. Most of the staff wasn't on staff then. I was the middle school director, so they didn't let me upstairs, okay? I just had to stay downstairs most of the time till I earned my way up the stairs. This conversation has been in play for 10 years. And let me tell you something, just off the top, over the 10 years, the elder board, and there's been different elders on and off the board, have been in complete uh, unanimous agreement this whole time. So the reason why we're talking about this 10 years after we first started studying it or looking into it isn't because there was some fighting or isn't because there was an agreement. It was simply because, and this is what we believe, that sometimes, sometimes saying the right thing at the wrong time doesn't seem right anymore. And we know that because we've been married. And try to talk to your wife about something important when she's hungry. That's just my experience. It is very difficult. And so part of leading well, and hear my heart, we want to lead well. Part of leading well is understanding the timing in which we say things matters. It matters to us organizationally. It matters to us interpersonally. It matters because we care. And so as we track this down, there's literally a paper written on the elder board from 2011 that talk about what we're going to talk about today. And then things started happening at Crossroads. You know, you had staff roll on and off. That was kind of traumatic in some ways. And, and Steve left a couple of years ago, and we just didn't feel like it was the right time to say what we thought was the right thing to do. And that's okay. Because at Crossroads, there's one thing we believe and hold on to. It's in the paperwork you'll get today at CBC 101. It's on our website. We, we firmly believe in this statement that in essentials, there's unity. In non-essentials, there's liberty. And in all things, there's charity. So when we say in essentials, there's unity, that things we don't compromise on, those are things about the person and work of Jesus. That is salvation through faith alone, by grace alone. That is that you didn't earn your place before God. Jesus earned it for you because he loved you and not because of what you did for him. Those are the essentials that we believe about the scriptures. And then there's the non-essentials. And non-essentials don't mean not important. They're very important. But they're just things where the community of God can have disagreement on and still be the community of God. Music is a good example here. There are some churches around us that don't believe it's okay to use instruments in worship. I've never shown up to one of their worship sets for obvious reasons, but I think they're okay to believe that. They pull some scriptures from the Psalms, and that's great, good for them. There are some people that believe differently about different foods you can eat and different things you can drink and even dancing. I went to Moody Bible Institute. You are not allowed to dance because that's how babies are made. Um, I think, <laughs> going back to the mid-90s there, everybody, right? You had to get special permission to dance at your wedding. And I know Moody kids, that's not dancing what they did. It's swaying, but that's okay, everybody. There are non-essentials that are still important, but we just have to recognize they're not ultimate. This conversation is one of those that it's important, but it's not ultimate, and unity is important. And so we've waited a while, one, to be sure we're sure about where we're at, to study the scriptures, deep dive into scriptures. I think all the elders would say this is probably the deepest dive we've done, deepest study we've done over any aspect or issue or theological kind of, uh, theological kind of uh, uh, agreement that we've had. And so I think we've waited 10 years because I think we just want to make sure it's done well because we care for people and because we think it's an important but not an essential part of our doctrine. And so we've waited because we think it's the right thing to do. And here's the truth that our church is in a really good place. 
We're healthy and we're growing and it feels like we love each other. Don't burst my bubble today. It feels like we love each other and we're for each other. And churches are messy, so sometimes it's not always the case. And so all those things combined, we finally said, you know what, I think now's a great time to have this discussion that we feel like God has been laying on our hearts because we want to equip people to lead. Because we want to use all the resources at our disposal to tell people about the goodness and beauty of Jesus. That's it. Period. And so we said, you know, we've been on this for about a year and a half. We were actually going to roll this out last year, but COVID hit. And we decided, again, probably not the best time to do this. And so finally it got back around and we're like, hey, I think this is a good time. And over the last four months, we've been talking with leaders in different leadership groups and simply saying, hey, this is a position of the elder board um, and just listening and getting insight and thoughts and questions. And it's been really positive. And so let me talk about why we're talking about on a Sunday. Because you might say, I met with one group a couple weeks ago and uh, this one guy said, man, why are we even going to talk about this? Just do it and don't ask. <laughs> First of all, I thought, you're my kind of dude. Uh, Second, I thought, you know what? For some people, this might not be a big deal. For some people, you might say, sure, yeah, whatever, we trust you and this is good. For some people, you might say, I don't think we need to talk about this. For us, we're saying we want to be transparent as a leadership group. We want to be honest. We don't want to feel like we didn't talk about it or give people uh, uh, places to speak back into our leadership and our theology. So this is just for us saying this is how we believe God is leading us and we think it's a good thing because transparency is always good in leadership. As much as I'd wish to just brush by this and not have a moment to discuss it, I think it's a really important and healthy thing that we feel like we can discuss it together. Sound good? So, so today, we're going to walk through, like I said, we have four affirmations, and at the end of the service, if you want, there's going to be two papers out back that we wrote. One is a short one that's two pages long that the elders told me to, to write, and the other is me. It's 10 pages, single-spaced, front and back. Um, welcome. <laughs> Uh, and so you can pick those up too. Most of what I say today is, is going to be in there. Um, but here's our four affirmations. Let's go. So before we get anywhere on the four affirmations, we have to talk about where we began. And this verse in Timothy is a good reminder that all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's the deal. Fundamentally at CBC, we teach what the scripture says. We believe the scripture is our authority in life and godliness. And when the scripture conflicts with our emotions or our wills, the scripture wins, period. So just know, and this is important, just know that this started in and has followed through being a place where we've just gone to the scriptures and says, what does it say? What does it say about leadership and church organizational management? And like I said at the beginning, this is an issue that some churches believe differently in, and that's an okay thing. This is one of those okay things. But, but what we did was we said, what does the scripture say about what we believe, about the different roles of leadership in churches? And, and that's where these statements came from, and hopefully you'll see that. So the first one, we affirm the equality of men and women. This is one of the first things you see in the Bible. Literally, it's the first thing you see in the Bible written about humanity. In Genesis 1, you know the verse, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. So what we need to understand first and foremost is that God is for the value and worth of all people, not just because he loves them, but it's beyond and bigger than that. He's for the value and worth of all people because we bear, we and only we in creation bear the very image of God. Big deal that you and I reflect male or female, young or old. We reflect the very image of the God that we were called to reflect the rest of creation towards that we bear God's image. Right now in this world, I think there is no greater applicable truth. We need a little less internet courage and a little more Imago Dei as a guiding principle, you know? We need to remember that even if we disagree, we're made in God's image. That even if we have a hard time with, and this person's annoying, they are made in God's image as is you. Because if you find somebody annoying, I guarantee you somebody finds you annoying. Sorry to burst that bubble, you know? We need to remember that this is where the Bible begins in the context of all of humanity, all of humanity, all of us carry the very image of the God that we are called to reflect people towards. That is where the Bible starts, and that is where we start. John Mark Comer is a pastor out of Portland. He's wrote, written a lot of really great books. He says, this is an inarguable statement. Human rights are a thoroughly Christian innovation, idea, and conviction that literally are contrary to secular Darwinism and evolutionary theory. 
what he says there. And actually, he goes on to quote the leading atheist of our time. And he says that the leading atheist says that human rights are a Christian myth. And he said they only make sense if you believe that all human beings are made in the image of God. So what he's going to say is that the only way you get to all people are valued is if a creator gives value to those people. And this is what the first century church operated on, by the way. You know, adoption is pretty much a Christian invention. In the first century world, we've talked about this, it's horrifying and awful. In the first century world, men ran their households. And if they didn't want things, they just didn't have them in their households. They treated everything in their households, children, women, and slaves, like property. That's why you get the texts in Ephesians 5 and 6 saying, hey, men, run your households out of a rule and ethic of love, not power. And in the first century world, if men didn't want children, they just literally wouldn't pick up the child. If it was in any way defective at birth, if in any way, sometimes if it was a girl at birth, or if they just had enough. And they would leave the kids outside the doorstep because it wasn't a part of the family till the man picked it up. And the kid would either die of exposure or get picked up by slave traders. Christians came along and started picking up these babies that people would leave just because they were called to love them because they were made in the image of God. And even today, Christians are the driving force and the majority of people that believe in, that buy in, that do adopt children. Why? Not because we want to be good people, not because we want God to love us more, because all people are made in God's image and they're worth protecting and fighting for, period. And so when we begin our discussion on the value of people and the value of men and women, we understand that the image of God pervades both men and women. It's an Old Testament idea. It's a New Testament idea in Galatians 3. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That was radical at the time. He was saying that we're all equal in value because God made us in his image. So let's establish one thing at the beginning. Because this conversation, this is one where you're bringing baggage into it. I know it, right? Either you don't know you're bringing baggage or you know it and you're okay with it. But you were raised with a belief about how the church should be structured and ordered. And that's great. So was I. And so there's two camps on this. You have your, your egalitarian and you have your complementarian, if you want to use the words. This side over here believes that there are, are, are different genders and different roles for different genders. And this side over here, egalitarians, believe that, that there are different genders, but the roles can all be the same, right? There's no distinction in hierarchy um, in what they can do. And we're going to fall somewhere in the middle of the two, just kind of a heads up. Um, but one thing we have to acknowledge, I went to a church for years that didn't believe that women could... Um, be in leadership positions and didn't believe women could teach. And you know what? They valued women. This is not, this is not on both sides. This is not a case of value loss. It's a case of seeing what the scriptures teach about where the value is added, both sides. And so we believe that we start with the affirmation that men and women are created or they have a quality because we have and carry the image of God. It's where the Bible begins. It's where we begin. First affirmation. I hope we don't have a kickback yet. Second affirmation is that God's use of both men and women in uh, leadership, in ministry. So we believe that there's equality in um, the scriptures about men and women, and we believe and affirm God's use of both men and women for leadership in ministry. So what we want to do is go through the scriptures and talk through where does the Bible talk about women and where does the Bible use women. And here's one thing that we see. In the Old Testament, in the time of Jesus, and in the New Testament, women all held leadership roles. And, and by the way, in pretty patriarchal societies. So let's talk about the Old Testament for a second. In the Old Testament, Miriam was a prophet and a helper to Moses. We, we just went through numbers and found this. God allowed Miriam to be a prophet, to be a leader among the people. There's that story where Miriam and her brother Aaron wanted more power, like we all do sometimes, and tried to usurp the authority of Moses. God used Miriam as a prophet for the people of God. We see Deborah was a prophet and the highest leader in all of Israel in the book of Judges, and not just because there wasn't any men present, because God chose Deborah. We also see in uh, 2 Kings that Huldah was a prophet to King Josiah. That is a name that needs to catch on, okay? Huldah. I mean, if you've got any hipsters in the crowd, nobody else is going to be named Huldah, and it's biblical, yeah? Huldah was a prophet that Josiah talked through when he found the scriptures again. He found the law, and he asked her, what should we do? Huldah was one of the seven prophetesses in the Old Testament with Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, and Esther. What we see in the Old Testament is God's use of women in leadership roles. Throughout the scriptures, women served in positions of leadership in the Old and New Testaments, and, and, and he used them specifically and purposely to proclaim the message of the good news, whether the Old or New Testament. 
What we see is that the consistent leadership of women in the Old and New Testaments, as well as the increasing occurrences in leadership with Jesus in the early church, shows a cultural ethic of women, not only as inheritors of God's gospel, but leaders in God's gospel ethics. That's the Old Testament. You have this idea, this notion, this practice that women have led, and God can use women to lead because he chooses them. And then fast forward. Let's go to the time of Jesus. I think in the time of Jesus, you have to understand, especially, we just hit on it a little bit, but the Roman ethic of the day talked through how women were really not people. They were more property. There's an old Jewish saying. It's actually literally a prayer that rabbis would say in the morning in the first century world. And they would get up and they'd say, oh, blessed God, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Right? Women were not highly valued. And Jesus came into this socioeconomic structure. He came into the structure of authority, and he came into the structure of hierarchy and patriarchy. And you know what he did? He used women to not only speak about him, but women announced he was coming at the first time, and there was a woman that said he's risen for the first time. Those are big. He really liked women, and he really liked women named Mary, right? (laughs) He used them time and time again to first say, Jesus is coming, guys. Get ready. God gets to choose who he wants to do, what he wants to do. That's part of the definition of God. And he started by saying, I'm going to use a woman to proclaim that I'm coming. And one of my favorite things that talk about the validity of the resurrection, in the first century world, women couldn't do a couple different things. They couldn't learn the Torah, which we're going to see he lets them do in a sec. And they couldn't be witnesses in court because they weren't deemed credible. Jesus raises from the dead. He appears to a woman and he says, you're my witness. Go and tell everybody. First person. Think about that. That is radically inclusive in a time that treated women more like property and not people. He appears to Mary first and says, go and tell everyone I am risen. He actually uses her to go tell the disciples. If I'm depth charting the disciples, I'm probably hitting Peter first and then maybe Luke at this point. Maybe Matthew a little bit. But he chose Mary. I think it shows an ethic that flies counterculture to the ethic of the day. Two, you see in Luke chapter 10 that he let women sit at his feet and learn. There's another Mary here. Shocking, right? And what we see is that women sat at his feet and learned. And you might just say, well, this woman is just sitting at his feet. But Jesus was a rabbi and positions have power. What I mean by that is anybody that's gotten engaged gets on a knee because that is cultural meaning, you know? In the first century world, a person that sat at the feet of their rabbi while they taught was a disciple, was a learner, wanted to be just like their leader. Women were not allowed to do that. Jesus lets her. Women were not allowed to take that position, yet Jesus come and sit. So much so that, that Mary's sitting and learning and Martha's doing the dishes, you know the story, and Jesus says, this is better, come on, right? This idea that he let women not only uh, proclaim his arrival, his resurrection, but also he let them sit and learn and become disciples. What a radical thought in a world that didn't think women had much to add, that didn't value them. So in the Old Testament, we see women absolutely as leaders. In the New Testament, we see Jesus flip the culture on its head and say, hey, you don't have value for these uh, women, but I do because they're made in my image and they can be and do and lead and proclaim. And then the rest of the New Testament, again, these papers are going to have way more information than I'm giving now, but the rest of the New Testament, what we see as a common theme is women in leadership. We see women present uh, when the apostles prayed in the upper room in Acts 1 and Acts 12. We see Lydia that helped plant the church in Philippi in Acts uh, 18. We see Priscilla taught Apollos about the way of God in Acts 18. Junia is called an apostle in Romans 16. Phoebe was a deacon in the church at Rome. One thing we see over and over and over again in the first century world with all the churches is that women took leadership roles in those churches. They were called apostles. They were called disciples. They were called prophets. They taught men along the way, and they even started and planted churches. So what we see isn't just that it was a one-off, but that God continually used women to lead his church after he ascended. One of my favorites is Priscilla and Aquila. You see them throughout the book of Acts, but they got kicked out of Rome in AD 49 under Claudius, and a bunch of the Jewish Christians did, and a bunch of the Christians did. Anyway, and then you fast forward, and Paul lives with them for 18 months, and when Paul references Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is actually the wife, and Aquila is the husband, And that was insane because in the first century world, you never listed the wife first because she was the property of the husband. But the scriptures do. The writers do. Paul does, implying to all of us that they had inequality in the ministry and the growth of the early church, the responsibility to lead and lead well. So look, 
a lot of scriptures, a lot of information. Here's the big idea that seemingly there's a consistency throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, time of Jesus, New Testament, that women led in the church. They led in Israel. They were allowed to lead in the time of Jesus. And they did so not because nobody else would, but because God appointed them. So we affirm that men and women, just like the Bible tells us, are, have been, and will be leaders in God's going forth of his gospel. Third affirmation. We affirm, we affirm women are called to lead as prophets, pastors, deacons, teachers, church planners, missionaries, taking the gospel to other cultures. And you're saying, Charlie, that's really wordy. I know. But those are really just the terms that we see in the New Testament that women fill. All of those are. When we talk about prophet and teacher, um, just a little bit of prophecy there. We say prophet because there were women prophets in the first century church. And, and, and there's two camps in this. One camp is going to say that prophecy is a gift that was given to the early church that is no longer given to us. So it showed its, its credibility and its validity in a world that, that, that needed to know that it was actually from God. And that's okay. They're called cessationalists. They believe that gift came and then now has gone. And other groups today believe that prophecy still exists. What I'm saying with this is it doesn't matter where you come down on that camp. What you need to know is that women were allowed to be prophets in the first century church. And prophecy was speaking with authority about what God had for his people in that time and place. And women were allowed to be prophets. They spoke into, we see it in 1 Corinthians 11, 4 through 5. Paul literally gave instructions for how women were supposed to prophesy. He doesn't say, well, they shouldn't, but if they do, he says, hey, women, when you prophesy, do it like this so that people hear your words and don't see something else and not hear your words. You see Anna prophesy in Luke, and then you also in Luke, in Acts 21, you see Paul being prophesied over by Philip's daughters. You just see it happening. And we say prophet, we say teacher. Again, we go back to Priscilla and Aquila. There's a story in Acts where this guy gets up in the synagogue to speak about Jesus. And I guess he does so, but he doesn't do so very well. And so after he gets up and speaks, it says they took him aside, Priscilla and Aquila, and they taught him the ways of God. It reminds me of one of the first weddings I did. I was team doing it with this other pastor. So I was a good friend of the wife, and he was the pastor of, the youth pastor of the, the guy, and he's much older than me. And the night before, the bride tells me, hey, are you going to speak on Colossians 3? I said, nope, hadn't planned on it. She said, I'd love for you to. I said, great, that's what I'm doing, okay? So I was supposed to do the teaching part. He was going to do the vow part. So I get up there, and I teach on Colossians 3, and I thought I did a pretty good job, but I'm also a little arrogant. So I thought I did well, and I get down, and this older guy gets up there, and he reteaches through the entire passage <laughs> in front of everybody. And I was like, okay, he didn't think I did well, you know? Essentially, he got up there and did what Priscilla did, and he said, hey, you, you get it, but, but here's some more. Let me teach you about the ways of God, women teaching men. And so you see it as a prophet. You see it as a teacher. Let's talk about that idea of pastors real quick because it's tripped some people up. Different churches use different words to describe different organizational levels of hierarchy in churches. Pastors, minister, director. So let's just go to what the scripture says about pastors. In the New Testament, when that word pastor is used, it literally means shepherd. The Greek word poimen literally just means you're a shepherd of people. We see it in Matthew 9, 36. He saw the crowds. This is Jesus. He had compassion on them because they were bewildered and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, our word there. And then you go to Ephesians 4, and the writer is talking about, Paul is talking about, here's what happens under Christ. God's going to give you gifts. We all have spiritual gifts under God. You come into the kingdom and God says, I've equipped you, I've gifted you, I've given you this talent. And the church's job is to, like we said at the beginning, step into the gifts and abilities God has given to further the gospel. And this is what he says in Ephesians 4. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He ascended on high and he captured the captives. He gave gifts to men. And this is verse 11. He said, and he himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, all gifts, some as pastors, there's our word again, and some as teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, that is to build on the body of Christ. Look, all, all we mean there is that in the New Testament, it tells us that the office of pastor is a gifting, not necessarily a church organizational office. There's a difference. And what it talks about when it says pastor, here's what a pastor is. It's somebody that shepherds well. You, you and I know different people. Some are born shepherds. You know that? They're born to come alongside and to suffer with and to love well. I think about Crossroads staff in the past. I think Mike Messerly. That man was a born pastor. That man loved so incredibly well. And you know what? That's a gift that God gave him. We would say at CBC, 
If you're a small group leader, you are in some ways pastoring people. You're shepherding them. You're leading them. You're loving them. We would say that women at CBC, where they lead kids' ministry or women's ministry or small group, they are pastoring people. It's a gift that God gives. And in the New Testament, it seems to be a gift that God gives both men and women. So we affirm that women are called to lead as prophets and as teachers and as church planners and missionaries and take the gospel into other cultures because that's what we see in the New Testament. And we see all these different places where women are called to lead. And then finally, our last affirmation is we affirm the Bible designates the office of elder to be held by men. This is the one place we see a difference. And it's really from example. We see it in a couple different places, but there's no kings in the Old Testament that are women. And even though Jesus allowed women alongside of him in the first century world, the core 12 um, were, were men. And when Paul talks about the responsibilities of eldership, he seemingly limits it to men, even though he doesn't deacons. And so really this last one is just driven from principle of what we see, that, he, that God equips all his people to lead in all these different ways. But it seems like the New Testament teaches us that the differentiator is that God believes that the, the New Testament teaches that the role of elder is specifically to be held by men. So in that complementarian, egalitarian spectrum, we're kind of like just to the right of center, you know, complementary light, if you will. And what this does, hopefully, and what our statement is, it's our consensus that women are called to lead confidently, expressing their spiritual gifts in all areas of ministry, with the only limit being the role of elder. Yeah? So that's our fourfold affirmation. And again, some of you might say, great, perfect, I love it. Some of you might say, I've been here for 20 years, why are we wasting time? Some of you might say, I have a hard time with that, and that's okay. That's okay. We want to have clarity around what we're talking about. We want to celebrate the leadership God has given us. We want to talk through some of these issues that are not essential, but important. So real quick, let's pivot. Let's go to 1 Timothy. Because um, I want to deal with one of the harder texts when it comes to this idea. I grew up in a conservative Christian household. I went to the definition of a conservative Christian Bible college. You guys know that I was the first class at Moody that could wear jeans to class? First class, that's right. You couldn't wear jeans before, because that's how the devil gets in, everybody, through denim. <laughs> I can make jokes all day long about Moody. I wasn't allowed to wear hats to the cafeteria, right? I was like, I'm not going to go there. It's going to take all of our time. But very conservative place. I, I grew up uh, with a conservative interpretation of this text. And let me tell you, as we dive into it a little bit, and as we talk about context, I think there's two good ways to read this text that, that, that don't agree with one another, but both respect the validity of the scriptures. And really what it comes down to, when you talk about texts like this, any text in the scripture, especially the New Testament, is you as a reader have to make a distinction between a supracultural principle or directive and a cultural principle. You have to make the distinction between is this something that carries weight beyond the audience it was first written to or is this something that only applies to a time, space, and place that Paul was writing to in our case in the New Testament. There, there are numerous examples of supercultural directives in the Bible. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Love your enemy. Those have no bounds in any culture. He didn't mean just love your enemy in Jerusalem. He meant just love your enemy everywhere because it mirrors how God says to love. It mirrors how God loves us. So we have to decide when we get a text, is it a supercultural directive or is it a cultural principle? And there are some examples of cultural principles. For example, in John 13, Jesus said, your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. When's the last time you got good and deep in somebody's toes, right? We don't do that every week in the church. We take communion, right, as a directive, but we don't do this because this is a time and place issue. The point there is he's telling them to serve in, this, in the first century world was the best way to show humility and not pride. And so he said, you're going to carry forward and live in a rhythm in a way that reflects humility, not prideful possession of power. I think another great example coming from the text in, this is actually 1 Timothy, I think I say second on here, but so I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute. This text leads into the text we're about to get into. We've prayed, I've counted five times this morning, and I've seen no hands in the air, all right? And God still listens. There are cultural principles and there are super cultural directives. I think another example of a cultural principle, literally in our text that we're going to get into in 1 Timothy 2.9 Likewise, women are dressed in suitable apparel with modesty and self-control. Their adornment no, must not be with braided hair, gold, pearls, or expensive clothing. Okay, this is flower mound, all right? We're not going to kick people out because they have braided hair, they're wearing some earrings, and they have $100 jeans, right? It's just, 
It's not the purpose. In that current context, he was speaking against his unity, and we don't apply this one like it's a supercultural directive. We apply this one like it's a cultural principle. And that begins kind of our foray into this text. It starts in verse 9, it ends in verse 15, and it's really the strongest case if you want to take the other side against women's leadership. This is probably it. And so let's dive in a little bit. A couple things you have to know. Um, when we talk about scripture, just like we just talked about, context is so incredibly important. A phrase I love is that a scripture without context is a pretext for proof text. What that means is if you take any scripture out of context, you can use it for a proof text for things that it might not actually mean. Let me give you some examples of my favorite. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. I was watching a church service a couple weeks ago in my home because I do that for fun because I'm a pastor. Um, and this guy got up there and he's kicking off the service and he said, you know, God, we know that because there's more than two of us in this room, you're with us. And I just start yelling out loud at the TV, right? This happens all the time. My wife's used to it. And why I yell is because this dude was just straight wrong. But why I yell is because what this text means is not that where two or three are gathered, there God is. Because you know what? You know where God is? All the places we believe in the omnis. God heard you in the shower this morning just like he heard you in this room. It doesn't matter if you're alone or not. That goes against what we know and believe about God. What this text refers to in context is about how God's going to be with people that have to walk through the painful process of church discipline. And when you have to do this with a couple others, don't be afraid. I'm still with you. It's a comforting context of, of, of what happens in conflict. Not a guarantee against when God's not showing up if you're not with others. It's important to know that because if you don't know that and read this text, I question whether God hears me if I'm alone and praying. When he's talking about two or three are gathered, man, he's saying it's really difficult when you've got to walk through church discipline. Know that I'm with you because that's how many people you take to, to go into these hard situations with. Another one, it's pretty low-hanging fruit, but we'll go there, is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How I know it's not all things is I still can't dunk a basketball. I've prayed this prayer since I was 12. That's all. That's it. If you read the context of this, Paul's not talking about literally all things. He's saying that I can have joy in hard times and in good times. I can have a consistency of joy. I can do all these things because Christ gives me strength in the lean times and in the times of abundance. That's what he's talking about. But pull these things out of context and we get a different meaning of the text. And so what we have to know is the context of Ephesians. There's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I love this quote. He said, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, might be the most difficult single passage of all of Scripture. Verse 12 looks clear until it's read in context. He says, note that Paul, speaking countercultural to his day, wants women to learn quietly and submissively as men should learn too. In Corinthians 11, Paul praises the Corinthians for following the tradition he taught them, including women having to pray and prophesy or speak authoritatively for God with their head covered. Surely 1 Corinthians 11 does not contradict 1 Timothy. Citing 1 Timothy 2.12 as a proof text without engaging the issues involved in interpreting and applying is dangerous and simplistic. So what we have to understand is what's going on in this context that leads Paul to write these words. And if you read the first three verses in 1 Timothy, he tells you there is some really bad false teaching happening. Really bad false teaching. In verse 3, he says this of 1 Timothy 1. I urged you when I was leaving from Macedonia to stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teachings nor to occupy themselves with myths and unimaginable genealogies. The whole book is about false teachings. The whole book is about disunity and divisiveness in their gatherings. The whole book is about people saying that Jesus isn't what you need to strive after. And we get further into the context of 1 Timothy written in Ephesus, there seemingly is this agenda of Paul against women because in Ephesus there was this thing called the Temple of Artemis. And you might not have heard of that, but it is one of the seven historical wonders of the world. And there's one second century theologian or a historian who said, who actually, he put the list together of the seven ancient modders of the, of the ancient world. And he said, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots. I've set eyes on the statue of Zeus by Alpheus, the hanging gardens of Colossus of the Sun, and a huge labor of the high pyramids and the vast tomb of Malsius. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked so grand. The temple of Artemis was twice the size of the Pantheon in Athens. It was huge. And we're Dallas Cowboy fans. We know what we build, we worship, right? <laughs> You've been to Jerry World. So you have to understand the pull of the first century cult of Artemis on the text. And it's seen throughout this text. 
because you see it in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, Paul urges them, hey, get married and have kids. There's going to be cults that come along and tell you not to do those things. And, and this cult worshipped the um, female god of fertility, Artemis, and it said that men were subservient to women, that women were better than men, and that women shouldn't get married and have families with men. And if you go to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, it completely speaks against them. He says, don't do that. There's going to be these cults that come. That's why if you skip down to verse 15, we get back to how cultural understanding informs our understanding of the text. It says in 14 and 15, For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived but the woman, because she was fully deceived and fell into transgressions. He's breaking apart the air of, of female superiority in the church. Because you know what I know? I know that Adam was deceived too. Because <laughs> how you doing? My name's Charlie. I'm a sinner. All right? I know that Adam was deceived first. And then he goes on to say, but she will be delivered through childbearing. Some versions say saved. The word there is literally salvation comes through childbearing in the Greek. If he continues in faith, love, holiness with self-control. Here's also what I know. That having kids doesn't save you. It just, <laughs> Jesus saves you. And so without a cultural understanding that they were telling people don't get married, don't have kids, trust in Artemis, this verse doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And when you understand and back up and see the cultural lens through which Paul is writing, writing what we're realizing is that in verse 8 and 9 and in verse 14 and 15, both those are seemingly cultural context principles that he's speaking into in this church. And then we get to the bulk of the text. And in this he says, in verse 12, you can read it if you want to, he says, I do not permit... Women to speak. It says, a woman, in verse 11, must learn quietly with all submissiveness, but I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She must remain quiet. And this is the verse that's kind of hard to interpret because you got to decide, is this a universal principle, a super cultural directive, or is this a cultural principle? And, and where the elder board has landed, where I land, is that this is a cultural principle because what happens in verse 9 and verse 10 and 14 and 15, and then also if you look at the specific language Paul uses here, it's a pretty good case to be made. Let's look at three words in the Greek. First one, it says, a woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness. That word quietly, hesokia in the Greek. That word hesokia does not mean to learn in silence, but peacefully or subdued. The same word hesokia is, is used in verse two of the same chapter. It says, pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and respectful in every way. That same word quiet doesn't refer to silence, but a life devoid of contentiousness, bringing the context to light the Ephesian church was experiencing tension and conflict during corporate worship, and some women contributed to the disruption, which is why Paul would call for them to be quiet, peaceful, and subdued in a society that teaches that women didn't need to be any of those things. Literally, the word he uses there doesn't mean silent. It just means don't cause division within the gathering, because the most important thing is Jesus. A pastor friend of mine went to grad school with, and this is back in, man, I'm getting older every day. I'm the only one. This is back in 2006, and he had a church in outside of Wheaton, and he had, he had uh, sleeves, so tattoos that cover your whole arms. He was in a heavy metal rock band growing up. He was the drummer. I was like, I hate heavy metal, but that's awesome, you know? And I remember he told me that when he teaches, every time he would wear long sleeves. And I said, why? And he said, because I don't want people to misinterpret my tattoos as something wrong. And I said, you've got to grow your people up. Show those tattoos and show them it's okay because God says it's okay. You know, a little like, hey, just kind of poke the bear a little bit. Immaturity is what that is. And he looked at me and he said, look, whether you can get tattoos or not, and we think we can at CBC um, is not the issue. But if people don't see past my tattoos and see Jesus, then I'm the one at fault. That's the big idea. And so I think he's telling the people in this church, the biggest part is Jesus. So when you learn, learn in a subdued way that doesn't cause divisions in. That's why he uses this word for quiet. There's another word in the Greek for silence that he doesn't use. And then you get into, I do not permit. The Greek is epitrepo. What he says when he says, I do not permit, is literally, he's using the present active indicative in that word. I, the word literally epitrepo means I will permit or will allow. And then there's the Greek negative ook on top of it. So I do not, and then will allow, meaning I do not allow. And here's what you need to know. In the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament and the Septuagint, the Greek interpretation of the Old Testament, in all of these texts, every time this word is used, it always, always speaks to a specific or limited circumstance, not forever. The present active indicative. It never means this is the way it's supposed to be forever and ever and ever. It specifically means this is for a place, for a time right now. Every other time in the, in the New Testament. 
And what we do when we study the scripture is we go to the Greek words and we say, how is this term used in context? How is it used in the context of everywhere else in the New Testament? Because writers use words that have meaning to them. And every time Paul uses this, it's meaning right here, right now, for a limited time, don't allow this to happen because it's causing a problem. So you have this silence word that doesn't really mean silence, and I do not permit that seemingly is temporary. And then I think the biggest argument for a culturally principled interpretation of this text is the word authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Let's talk about the word authority just for a second. Um, in Colossians, when we studied chapter 2, verses like 16-ish, we talked about this phrase, hepix legomena, right? And I told it to you just so you could impress your friends, because if anything, that's what we're doing at Crossroads this morning, right? It's a study on how we can impress others. And what that means is every once in a while in the New Testament, you come across a word that's not used anywhere else or used very little. And those words are very hard to interpret. This word authority is never used any other place in the New Testament. The word for authority in the Greek is excusia, and Paul uses the word authentine here. Why this is really important is because Paul had and used the word authority several times, lots of times in the New Testament. And in this one place, at this one time, he uses a different word that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. So it's hard to, it's hard to define it. This word that he uses here in the rest of his writings, it speaks to proper authority in the church. That's when he uses exousia. But this unique word, when used in other first century writings, describes an assertion of dominance or aggressive. That's why the Latin Vulgate and several other translations interpreted this passage as a warning against usurping authority. According to lexicographers, authentine is synonymous with no, not to dominate some, someone. So the word he uses seems to indicate that Paul is prohibiting women from teaching men in a manner that is aggressively dominating and which should be improper as well for a man. See this phrase throughout the New Testament, this word authority, and it's not the word he uses here. And so my thing is to build an entire theology off a word that we don't see anywhere else that seemingly doesn't carry the same meaning isn't necessarily a wise thing to do. And so for all of these reasons, and there's more, I don't want to get too deep into this, we look at this passage and we say, I think it's a cultural principle that Paul's fighting against. Because we see women in leadership and women teach and women prophesy all throughout the New Testament. Philip, it's a lot. I'm at 46 minutes, which is about 16 minutes of where I normally am on a Sunday. But why we do this is because we feel like it's important. And why we do this is because we feel like it's important for people to know that where we come to is found in the scriptures. So let's talk just a little bit about what's next. One is our position here. You know, this actually doesn't change our bylaws or our doctrinal statement at all. I mean, a little bit. I've actually had women teach up here before. Joe Briscoe came and taught like 15 years ago or 13 years ago or something. And uh, Delin's taught up here a couple of times, usually with me. Chantel taught once or twice back in the day. Again, it's a team teaching situation, but this doesn't change our bylaws and it doesn't change our doctrinal statement. You, you guys just need to know that. We're not making some big pivot as a church. We're simply bringing clarity to a situation that doesn't have it because we feel like that's a gracious thing to do. We say it will change though. A couple things. One, we're going to start referring to women on staff that are pastors as pastors. So Delaine will be pastor of women ministry. Carol will be pastor of children's ministries because we feel like that's what they are. We feel like what's the Bible, that's what the Bible calls them. And, and two, it's a couple times a year a woman's probably going to get up here and teach because we feel like the Bible calls them to it. We want to enhance the giftedness of women to teach. And, and we feel like that's a biblical and godly response that they can and will. And, and we have before at CBC. And we want to step into this is how God is gifting his people. We want to be that kind of church because we believe that's important. So let's talk about what you do if you disagree. Because even though I think I just made a rock-solid case from my point of view, <laughs> it's okay to disagree. Let me tell you what my heartbeat is as a pastor. I've said this for years. As a church, we've got to be a place that fosters it an atmosphere of, of holy disagreement again. We're not. One of the problems in our society is that when we disagree with people, we leave those people and only find and interact with people that agree with us. You know what that creates? Deep division and pride because then I only surround myself with people that think I'm right, so I think I'm right all the time. <laughs> this issue, let me just say, this issue has been taught about and fought about in healthy and godly ways for years. There are people that know and love Jesus and that are way smarter than me that disagree with me. And there are people that know and love Jesus that, that are way smarter than me that, that agree with me. This is a place where we can come together and remember that unity is important. One of my favorite stories in this is there's a pastor in the Dallas area at big, big church. 
And about a decade ago, maybe six, seven years ago, they made a switch, a switch in this, and they were really complementarian, and they actually went all the way egalitarian. And he was telling me about it, and he said, it's a big deal, and he, he asked me to pray for him. I said, okay. And he told me the Sunday it was going to happen, and so I watched online. And I remember praying for him as I'm watching, and his, his elder board got up there and made a statement, and then he got up there and taught. And he had been at this church for 25 years. He built this church from a couple hundred to thousands and thousands. And I remember he gets up there and I'm praying for him, and he starts off by looking at his people. He was actually, he was actually, um, uh, was actually live streaming because that technology existed before CBC found it. And <laughs> shocking. Um, and he got up there and he looked at his people and he said, this was not my decision. And I thought, that is not the way I would have begun this conversation. Like, that is a terrible leadership. He said, this was not my decision. He said, if it was, we would have done this 25 years ago. Loved it. He said, I'm under the authority of the elder board, and church unity is important, and we're here because of Jesus. <laughs> and he said, so if you disagree, I've disagreed for 25 years, that's an okay place to be. So I'd say the same thing to you. We call people to maturity and to disagree wholly in, in a holy way that says we remember the place of this in the context of the gospel. This is something that culture has changed on a little bit. Moody, for example, just to give you some context, the place that you couldn't wear jeans because that's how the devil got in through the denim, that one. Moody, when I went there, women couldn't take homiletics preaching courses. They weren't allowed to. We have this big thing called Founders Week at Moody. It's in the second weekend of February because it's the coldest weekend of the year. And um, they cancel classes, bring in speakers, and you have to go listen to all these speakers all week long. There was always a student that taught one of the days, like the best preaching student. No, it was not me. Uh, the best preaching student. And last year, a woman taught for the first time. It's a good deal. Just to show you that people can grow and change and not threaten how they view Scripture and not threaten how much they love Jesus. And so I think as we talk about this as a church, if, if we disagree, talk to us. You can send questions to elders at crossroadsbible.org. You can stop me afterwards. In a couple weeks, it's either going to be the 25th or the first week in October, we're going to have our first elder listening session. And all that is, is as an elder board, we're going to grab some coffee and sit somewhere in the building and say, come, and we'll just sit and you can come and, li- and talk to us. We'll listen. Can't solve all the problems, but we just want to hear what we're seeing and what's happening in our body and speak to issues that need to be spoken to. And so people feel like they can see us and find us and talk to us and have our ear because that's important. That's what good leadership does. And so we want to be a place. We can disagree well. Do you know why? Because when we disagree well and still call ourselves church family, people see the beauty of a uniting Jesus. And so this issue is important to us. and It's good for us. It's going to grow us as a church. It's not going to change what we do as a church as much, but it's going to grow us now that we have clarity. And it's going to allow us to remember that in the end, Jesus is the most important and unifying thing. It's going to allow us to remember that in our essentials, the person and work of Jesus He's good and worthy of of getting together. It's going to allow us to remember that we will use all the resources and all the tools we can to send out the gospel to a world that desperately, desperately, desperately needs it. All right? I'm going to end now because I'm 15 minutes late and Kara's going to kill me, but let me pray for us, all right? God, I'm thankful for how you've called your people to lead. I'm thankful that we can be a church that equips all people, men, women, children, students, all of us, to lead well, and to talk well about how the gospel is changing us. So I, I pray for grace this morning when we speak and when we hear. I pray for an excitement in our church that's already here that we can equip people to go forward with the gospel. I, I pray for this church that can be a picture of Jesus in our communities, in our families, in our schools, in our businesses. That's a heartbeat. That people need to know how good God is and that we get to get, be those people to show them. God be with us and go before us as we are ambassadors for your good gospel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.